0: Well, we are beginning this morning the Gospel of John. Woo! There we go. Um, We are starting, uh, this is our first Gospel uh, that we've done in a while, and we are really excited. I'm really excited as I begin studying this book the last few weeks looking at kind of an overview of what this book is all about, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, kind of give you an overview, wet the appetite a bit, get you excited about the Gospel of John. This is our slide Isaac made for us. Doesn't it look good? (laughs) The, The series theme is the light has come, meaning that no matter when we're in the book and what we're talking about, that will be the main kind of tagline, the light has come. But we're going to do the book or walk through the Gospel of John in sections. So for this fall, we'll do about eight weeks, um, working through just the first chapter. And then we'll have Advent. We might take a break for the spring, and then we'll return to it maybe sometime later in the spring or early summer. Um, and when we go back to it later on, we won't have the same kind of sub-theme. For this fall, though, that sub-theme is, Who is Jesus? Jesus? That is the question that runs through the entire book of John, but particularly he hones in on it in chapter 1. Some of the things that John talks about, uh, the, the descriptions that he gives to Jesus, he says that Jesus is reality, right? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? John is talking about Jesus is reality. He is everything. He is the maker of all. He talks about Jesus being the light of life, God incarnate, God with skin on, uh, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, our rabbi or teacher, and the King of Israel. So as we look at kind of an overview and we get excited about this book, let's get the boring stuff out of the way. Who wrote this gospel? A man named John did. That's right. Most scholars agree. A man named John wrote this gospel. No. Uh, John, son of Zebedee, most likely is the one who wrote this gospel. There's another John called John the Elder in the early church. Uh, Most, though, think it was the Apostle John. Not John the Baptist or John the Elder, but John, son of Zebedee. And John, in his gospel, never self-identifies. He says that the person writing this is the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he never says, you know, this is the account of John, Like Luke would say, this is Luke's account of the life of Jesus or the gospel of Jesus. And this is why, like, uh, like the others, John at the very beginning of the gospel, uh, the first witness to Jesus, oh I see, I messed up there, sorry, like, like John the Baptist at the beginning of John's gospel, right, he comes calling out in the wilderness, pointing to the one that is to come pointing to Jesus. He's just a voice in the wilderness calling out, the Lamb of God is here. And so many scholars think that the reason that John doesn't self-identify and name himself is because he's not the point. The point for us is to see who Jesus is. And so that is who wrote the gospel. This gospel was probably written about 80 AD. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life. And I want to focus for a minute and talk about the difference between John's gospel and the other three, or the synoptics. Um, The reason that John's gospel stands apart from the other gospels or the synoptic gospels, gospels is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three, include many of the same stories or the same themes, and they are each told in a fairly similar way. John was the guy who wanted to be different, though. And so he writes his gospel in a very different way. Each writer in the synoptics gives a similar account or synopsis, right, of Jesus' life. Hence that word, the synoptics or the synoptic gospels. But John, on the other hand, is trying to do something a little bit different. Some things that are not, uh, that don't exist in John's gospel, right? Some stories that don't exist in his gospel, but that do exist in the synoptics. There's virtually no parables in John's Gospel. There's no uh, mention of the Lord's Supper or Jesus um, kind of introing communion, representing his body as the bread and his blood as the cup. And then there's no uh, mention of Jesus being tempted in the desert. There's many other things. There's no report of Jesus casting out a demon. There's no account of Jesus' glorification or the transfiguration there are fewer brief, pithy utterances and more discourses, but some discourses found in the synoptics, like the Olivet Discourse, are not found in John. Um, even the central themes to the synoptic Gospels have almost disappeared in John's account. Things like the Kingdom of Heaven, for example, aren't as strongly brought to the fore in John's Gospel. What about things that John's Gospel does have that the others don't. Uh, This is the only chapters two to four in John's gospel include the miracle of water into wine. It's the only gospel that tells that story. The resurrection of Lazarus and extended dialogues in the temple. John is after something different here. John leaves out major narratives that the other synoptics put in. But John also nuances some of his own narratives, and colors them more fully and has more detail than the other Gospels do. And so, what are some of the themes in John's Gospel? And there's no note, don't don't worry about taking notes here, we're going to talk about it for the next eight weeks. Here are some of the themes, or dualisms. Dualisms just is a word that means opposites. Right? So John loves to write in opposites or themes of opposites. For example, life and death, above and from below, light and darkness. He also talks about truth and lie or falsehood, sight and blindness, flesh and spirit. John loves to use these metaphors, these opposites, to showcase. Who Jesus is and what he's like and what he's about. And so this leads us into the heart of how John has laid out this account of Jesus' life in his gospel. And it's incredible. Um, To understand John's writing style and literary techniques, we need Rembrandt. A portrait or a painting of Rembrandt. Anybody familiar with Rembrandt? You've kind of heard that name before. Rembrandt photos have dark backgrounds typically, um, but are incredibly detailed and they're nuanced in their focus. So he doesn't worry so much about scenery and background. He wants to hone in particularly on the person's face, particularly in in portraits. So this right here is his rendition of um, Moses and the Ten Commandments. Here's another portrait that he's... Famous for he has several of these. Um, Rembrandt was known for his ultra realistic style, and one of the first to sort of get after painting these kinds of portraits. And some people accused him of being um, choosing to paint ugly things because he was trying to be so realistic. He wanted so much realism. He wanted his paintings to be so raw and accurate to what someone actually looked like, or the the pain they were feeling, or the emotion that they we're experiencing. And so reading John's gospel is a lot like staring at a scene of Rembrandt or a portrait of Rembrandt. Here's what I mean. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the stories of Jesus interacting with others are often told in rapid fire succession, one after the other, after the other, after the other. John's gospel tells some of those same stories Though not nearly as many, but he includes significantly more detail in his stories. So rather than a brief kind of sweeping overview where Jesus shows up in a city, all of a sudden it just says he he arrived, he was approached by the Pharisees, it was a couple back and forths, They're, they're upset and angry, he moves on and then there's another story. Rather than that, Jesus shows up to a town, he meets some neighbors, he reclines at the table. He has a long conversation that goes on for a chapter with that neighbor. Then he goes to the temple. It, things are drawn out. There's more detail, more nuance, like a Rembrandt painting. How does John use the Old Testament? Well, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, for example, quotes the Old Testament 124 times, a lot. Right? And he's trying to hammer home that Jesus is Israel's Messiah that fulfills the law and the prophets. John, on the other hand, only alludes to the Old Testament about 15 times. 15 allusions. And he returns to those allusions over and over and over and over throughout the scenes of his book. Each one of those allusions that appear are given proportionally greater value as a way of showing the depths of Jesus' identity. Right? So I'm going to give you an example of that in a bit. But John's goal isn't so much let me prove to you with a bunch of references that this, this guy is the one we've been waiting for. Though he is doing that but he's not doing it with 100 references. He's doing it with 12 or 15 that he hammers home over and over again, and he nuances in really beautiful and creative ways. One commentator writes this, If Luke, if the Gospel of Luke, as a writer, for example, if he's the master of quick, fleeting illusions, John is the master of the carefully framed, luminous image that shines brilliantly against a dark canvas and lingers in the imagination. John leaves you coming back for more. John prefers to focus on select key Old Testament passages to more fully show the brilliance and beauty of those themes and how they relate to Jesus. So, John's goal is not to get you to gain the maximum amount of information about Jesus, but rather to illuminate a handful of scenes in Jesus' life more fully. Just a dozen or so portraits that John paints, that the longer you stare at them, the more you see, the more you get. And again, I'll give you an example of that in a bit. So John, in chapter one, the reason why we're slowing down so much, we won't go quite this slow through the rest of the book, but in this first chapter, John gives you every single keyword or idea that he's going to reference throughout the entire book. He's a master writer. And he gives it to us in seed form in the first chapter. So all of the names and the titles of Jesus are called, are called out in this first chapter of his book. And that's why we're slowing down a bit to walk through chapter 1. Now, given how much depth is in each of these scenes in John, in chapters 2 through 20, you might think that it would be more difficult to grasp kind of what John's over overarching purpose is in his book, or what his goal is, or what the main theme or thrust of the book is, but it's actually not. You can totally read it through and get that John wants us to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, he's the Messiah, he's sent by the Father to save the world so that anyone who believes in him would have eternal life. Anybody can get that on just a cursory reading of John's gospel, which is why This book is so incredible because there's that base level understanding, but there's so much more as you keep reading it over and over and over. So John uses universal themes in his gospel that the reader, you and I, are familiar with, that we've heard before, that make the book more understandable. But like a good painting, the more you look at it, the more you notice. So what is John's purpose In writing the book? Well, he tells us. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Let's read that together. It says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Which are not recorded in this book. But these ones that are recorded in this book, these ones are here, they're written that you would what? believe. You would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This is interesting, okay, because this is like a meta comment from John, where he's kind of zooming out and like winking at the reader a little bit. John is breaking away from his narrative arc in the book to give a little author feedback, Um, John is saying that there's so many things I could have done in this account, and I could have told you, and I could have talked about, but I didn't want to give you all of those. I've just selected about a dozen portraits that I want you to really, really look at closely. Notice that John's comments here reveals that he's aware that there's other stories of Jesus out there, right? John most likely had one or two of the other synoptic gospels at his disposal when he was writing his. And he intentionally chose to write in a different way. Why? Because John wants to persuade us. He wants to persuade the reader to do something, to trust that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and that he is the Son of God. So is John trying to give you, or give us, an objective, journalistic account of Jesus' life? No, he's not. He's emphatically saying right here, that's not my goal. And it doesn't mean he's being dishonest, but that he's got a particular goal in mind. Everything in his account is aimed at this goal. He's highlighted key themes for us to ponder, for us to adopt a new view of the world, of who Jesus is, and of who we are. Of the world, of who Jesus is, and of who we are. Isn't it nice that he tells us, What his own goal is, he lays his cards on the table, he wants to change the way we think, the way we live, and the course of our lives by reading this account. Now look at the end end of the book, John 21, 24, and 25. John says that this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. He just referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so then he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And we know. Everything you just read was written by this disciple whom Jesus loved. And we know that his testimony is true. What in the world does that mean? Someone named John, who was in the apostolic circle, wrote this gospel. But to understand what's happening here with the we know, right? We know what's going, or we know that this testimony is true and valid. We need to look at another artist. So, Norman Rockwell. Who's familiar with this painting? This is a pretty iconic painting of a Thanksgiving dinner. Now, as you look at this intimate family scene that Rockwell paints, he was kind of known for his work with lighter colors, whites, and being able to contrast things, whereas Rembrandt was more known for those dark, darker images. Rockwell paints this incredible photo of a, of a family on Thanksgiving. And you, you sort of feel like you're a fly on the wall, right? Getting to see the inner workings of this family and what's going on. But then you realize that built into this story or this this image is someone who is aware that you are looking at the picture, right? When you look at the bottom corner there, is that the bottom right corner? Right, he's looking at you, right? And so this is kind of like art being aware of itself a little bit. And this is what the kids these days called, dude, that's so meta. (laughs) Something is meta, when it looks at itself self-referentially or from above or outside of itself, when it's, a, when it's aware of itself and it kind of comments on it, that means something is meta, right? And so that's what's going on here, right? In this painting, you've got the artist paints this incredible photo of a family on Thanksgiving, but he's kind of winking back at you saying, Hey, I know you're seeing us in this scene. You're not just a fly on the wall. Like, we're aware of you. Art being aware of itself. And that's kind of what's going on. This is the effect that the final sentences of of John's gospel have. You, You just thought you were watching some security camera footage. Then all of a sudden you realize, they know you're watching. So let me tell you that this whole account, everything that you're reading, comes from the disciple whose stories you just read and that we know that it's a faithful representation of Jesus. Now, who's we? What this tells us, the we know, what that tells us is that John wrote his gospel in the context of a community. And that community, that community is putting their stamp of approval on John's witness. So that means that John's gospel was written for who? For the church, for us. And it was written in the presence of his people, his church, his community. So the apostolic testimony of Jesus is for fostering the faith and commitment of followers of Christ. Now, back to this passage, that second sentence there, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Again, John acknowledging Were every one of them to be written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's so much more that I could say. Not all the world's scrolls could contain them. And then what's the next book in the Bible? Pretty cool, right? These story after story after story of what Jesus is doing in the world. The book of Acts. The presence of God, of of the God-man, Jesus, in his people, told on page after page after page, for what? The building of the body. For the building of believers, for the church. The Bible is really cool, guys. So that's John's purpose, a different take what is john's agenda one one of the things that he wants for us john wants you to view everything in light of jesus's death and resurrection the retrospective nature of the story is explicitly highlighted throughout john's gospel comprehending jesus's death and resurrection is the necessary key for understanding everything that he says and does in John's gospel. Every story points towards his death and resurrection, right? You think about the story of water into wine. What does Jesus say when he's approached about, you know, helping out, keeping the party going a bit? My hour has not yet come. What? What is that? What kind of response is that? And this is like story after story in John's gospel. Jesus is talking about this hour People are confused, I'm confused, you're probably confused. What's going on? He's talking about, my time is not yet come for me to die. What does that have to do with water into wine? Well, there's going to be a feast at the end of of everything. The feast of all feasts, the the supper of all suppers, with God's family in eternity in, in the new heavens and the new earth, where we'll celebrate what Jesus has done. And Jesus is kind of saying, I don't really want to keep this. This isn't the party that I'm trying to get going. The party I'm going to get going is going to take me sacrificing myself on the cross so that you can sit at my table. And that time hasn't quite come yet. So John is trying to get us over and over and over again through his gospel to look at, look forward to chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21. The death, the cross, And his resurrection. That's the first thing. Secondly, John wants you to keep discovering more about Jesus. John has designed these narratives so that you, the reader, can discover multiple layers of deeper meaning as you carefully reread the story. And this was the example I was referring to. Let me give you this really, really helpful quote. It's long, but it's really helpful. The Gospel of John is a text that constantly creates the impression that more is going on than immediately meets the eye. The author deploys the power of metaphor and symbol in a masterful way so that the stories and teachings of Jesus are constantly and mutually illuminated by referring to other texts within the book. This is why chapter one is so important, why we're slowing down for chapter one, because he's going to constantly be referring back to these titles, these descriptions of Jesus throughout the rest of his gospel. Continuing on, each story has been coordinated with other parts of the narrative, so that stories acquire more layers of meaning than the surface one. John is a master of irony, so that... The char- so that characters constantly say more than they intend and sometimes even the opposite of what they mean. Jesus is consistently misunderstood, foregrounding the question of what is the true meaning of his words. The gospel is also shot through with intertextual connections to the Hebrew Bible that expand the meaning of any given story when they are observed and then pondered. This book was written not only to make some sense to first time readers, but it was also designed to be studied in order to yield its full cornucopia. What a great word its full cornucopia of meaning to only the most attentive of students. Its frequently riddling character is meant to tease the intelligence and entice its readers into its world of multi dimensional meaning. Boom! There it is. John's gospel. Intricate, masterful, beautiful. Let me give you an example. Can you see that okay? So-so. So you've got the surface level meaning or the literal meaning of a story that I referred to that you can kind of read through on your first take and get kind of a base level. What is this talking about? For example, in chapter 9, John heals the eyes of a man born blind so that he can see, right? So you've got eyes, sight, blindness. But then the surface level images of the story become narrative metaphors and connect to a larger thematic thread that runs through the entire gospel. Jesus is the light in the darkness, right? So now you've got sight and light kind of blended together and darkness and blindness Blended together, and that enabling, of, uh, enabling others to see if they believe. Now you've got sight and light and belief kind of all paired together. If they don't believe, they can't see the light and will walk in darkness. Acts of unbelief often take place at night. Almost pretty much every person in John's gospel who doesn't believe um, is, is a story being told about them taking place at nighttime. Just Beautiful, incredibly intricate, incredibly nuanced. And then finally, the images and metaphors are usually connected to hyperlinks or other texts in the Hebrew scriptures that add another layer of meaning. Right? So though he doesn't quote the Old Testament 124 times, he's referring to very central themes that run throughout the Torah, throughout the Old Testament scriptures. For example, the conflict of light and darkness. When does that begin? Chapter 1, right? Of the first book of the Bible, an image of God's purposes to save the world. And you've got, we're okay. Israel's blindness and Israel's unbelief, right? In Isaiah 53 6. Just incredible. Story after story after story like this. The more you read it, the more you look into it, the more you learn about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So finally, John wants you to view everything in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Even in the way that the book is written, guys, story after story, he's got about 12 major stories that he tells after chapter 1. 12 scenes or portraits that you can look into deeply. And each one of them doesn't really make sense unless you see it in light of, the, of his death and his resurrection. And so, what does that tell us? It tells us that puzzling events or things that are, may feel confusing or not knowable, right? Always make sense in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. John's teaching us in the way that he constructs his own book, How to Be Christians. How should we make sense of events that are puzzling or confusing or difficult? We're going to have a hard time if we don't choose to see them in light of the resurrection, in light of Jesus' death. So John's trying to help us to be Christians who understand the full weight of the gospel. Secondly, like I just mentioned, John wants you to keep discovering more and more about Jesus through his portraits and then finally John wants to persuade you to see Jesus as he actually is John wants to persuade us throughout this the course of this book to see Jesus as he actually is John has written his account with a clear agenda that is aimed at persuading you the reader and I to believe in this testimony and to give faithful allegiance to Jesus John is bent on getting us to continually ask this question What does this story or portrait show me about Jesus? And John wants us to follow the real Jesus, not the Jesus that we have in the back of our minds or that we presuppose. And so I want us for a moment to end our time considering who do you think Jesus really is? And are you willing to try as best as you possibly can, no matter how long you've been following him, to put your presuppositions, your preconceived understandings of who Jesus is to the side while we go through this gospel, to let John's gospel speak for itself, to let that be the shaping, formative work on who we say Jesus is? Did Jesus' words ever offend you? Is Jesus simply an exceptional humanitarian? Is Jesus your homeboy? There's this group of... uh, okay, We'll call them Christians. They're they're probably Christians. I don't know. That sounds so rude. You can decide. They're called the red-letter Christians. Have you heard of these people? They're, They're only interested in the words of Jesus. The Old Testament, who needs it? Does Jesus ever call you to die to things that you want to really hold on to? Does Jesus have things to say about places like heaven and hell? Is Jesus the same God as the God of the Old Testament? Or is Jesus kind of the good cop, the New Testament good cop to that Old Testament angry bad cop? Do you ever ignore or minimize some of the things Jesus has to say about loving your enemies or caring for the poor and the marginalized and the overlooked or taking up your own cross? Do you ever ignore or minimize those commands? Because it's not my understanding of what Jesus really means. Is Jesus just a good, wise sage who got mistaken for God? Is he the reigning king of the universe who can't be bothered by our daily affairs? Does Jesus always agree with you? We laugh, but seriously. Does he always agree with you? Does he ever disagree with you? Is Jesus just a better, more morally put together version of you? Does your Jesus disagree with you? If you find yourself constantly nodding your head in agreement with things that you hear Jesus say, teachings in the word of God, his words, it's possible, maybe even likely. And I want you to really consider this, that you might be worshiping you more than you're worshiping him. Because if you don't find Jesus' words and teachings provocative and offensive sometimes, and difficult, then you probably haven't grasped what he's actually asking of you. And this is a problem, and you've heard me say it, I'm going to rail against it again, in the American church, the church in the West, because we are all benefiters. Is that a word? Benefactors? That's my word of the week. Beneficiaries. And we're also victims of the Enlightenment. Because the Enlightenment taught us what we think, how we rationalize, is the most important thing about us. And the American church is so fixated on cognitive, intellectual assent and belief that we've made Jesus' teachings and life palatable and easily relatable, so much so that he's barely recognizable. That version of him that we have in our minds to the actual Jesus in the Gospels particularly in John's gospel. We've made him relatable. we made him someone who doesn't disagree with us because what matters most isn't necessarily that we do exactly as he did, but that we agree with what he says. And so Jesus will say, take up your cross, deny yourself, die to that thing, to that love of money, to your hatred of a certain kind of person to your anger and we'll say amen Totally believe, 100% yes yeah, yes yes can you give me some of the Greek that goes along with that I'd really appreciate it we love it and then we actually have to try to do it not so fun maybe we don't love it so much if we're willing to try if we're willing to practice, because it only takes a little bit of effort into actually trying to practice the ways of Jesus to realize how incredibly difficult it is to do what He's asked of you. Now, His yoke is easy, His burden is light. He's gracious with us, He's kind, He's patient. But He says to take up your cross and die. He shouldn't always agree with you. He shouldn't never disagree with you. Choosing the king without the kingdom. Or choosing the kingdom without the king. That's another thing we like to do. We like the idea of King Jesus, but we actually haven't embraced him as such. Or maybe we just like the idea of the fruits of the kingdom. right? We like the idea of renewal and and revitalization and this kind of incredible work that would see our society thriving, but we don't actually see Jesus and put him at the place of king in our lives. And if we did, I think we'd realize how hard it is to actually follow him, to take up our cross and to deny ourselves. I want to end with this. Three different authors. You'll recognize probably two of them. C.S. Lewis A.W. Tozer and Jamie Smith, if they were each asked, what is the most important thing about us? Each of them would have a different answer. Lewis would say the most important thing about us is what God thinks of us. Is he wrong? Tozer would say the most important thing about us is what we think of God. Is he wrong? No, not necessarily. Jamie Smith would say the most important thing about us is what we want. We might think right things about God. We might know that God thinks certain things about us. But if it doesn't translate into how I live my life, in other words, my heart, what my heart longs for, then I haven't understood what it is that he's taught me. Or what it is that he thinks about me. A quote. Jamie Smith says this. What do you want? That is the question. It is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. In the Gospel of John, it is the first question Jesus poses to those who would follow him. The first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of John. When two would be disciples who are caught up in John the Baptist's enthusiasm begin to follow Jesus, Jesus turns around and pointedly says to them, and he asks them, What do you want? What what is it that you want? It's the question that is buried under almost every other question Jesus asks of us Will you come and follow me? is another version of what do you want? As is the fundamental question Jesus asks of his errant disciple Peter. Do you love me? Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't do that. He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive piercing question Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow our wants reverberate from our heart the epicenter of the human person thus the scripture counsels above all else guard what guard your heart For everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart. To be attentive to and intentional about what you love. And so, again, I ask you, are you willing to lay down your presuppositions about who Jesus is? And to let John's gospel shape that narrative for you, to let the word of God speak for itself, to let go maybe of some things that you feel pretty sure about, and to be truly open to let Jesus be who he actually is. I want to encourage you, this week, this week, we're all busy, we all have stuff to do, I get it, read the entire gospel in one sitting, you can do that, it might take you an hour, 45 minutes about 20 chapters read the entire thing in one sitting do it with your home community popcorn read take turns it will be worth it to just continue to wet the appetite a bit to help us get into some of these themes right and to to really begin to ask ourselves who is Jesus who do you say that he is that's his question to others over and over again who do you say that I am Who do you say that I am? Am I who I really am to you? Or am I just you, but a little bit more fixed up and put together? Love you guys. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful for you. Father, we're grateful for your word. Your word is incredible. It is endless in its depths, And nuance and detail. God, we're so grateful for the opportunity to look into your word, for John's gift in in writing a masterful account of your life. But Father, I pray that you would help us, your church, the men and women in this room, to not allow the studying of this book to override what you're actually trying to say to us. Don't let our intellect get in the way of us following you and, and taking up our cross and walking with you and letting you apprentice teach us as we apprentice you and learn from you, our teacher, our rabbi, the king of Israel, the son of God, the lamb of the world, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. God, would you, would you help us to hear from you as you actually are in this book? would you shape and form us more fully into your likeness that we would have the mind of Christ that can really look at the puzzling events of our own lives as we read John's gospel and we see the example of story after story that don't make sense unless we see it in light of your death and your resurrection. Would we be able to be Christians who live that way day to day that we would not be anxious presences in our, in our workplaces, in our homes, Because we can see our situation, our circumstance, and the story of our culture in light of the story, of the moment in history where everything changed. Where the God-man gave himself for sinners that they might know the peace and love of the Father. Thank you. We love you. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.